couple things as we look at this this morning. Um, this is a great passage, and so you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to talk about one of the greatest questions of life. Um, and, and I want to encourage, especially you young people, um, pay attention. Pay attention. Not because you're dumb, but because I think that you can get some gold here today that will last you your whole life. Um, I know um, some, of you ha- some of you have uh, headphones. How many of you have headphones? Headphones. And so, so you have those like noise-canceling headphones. But uh, unfortunately, if you do the noise-canceling headphones, uh, if you're putting noise into the noise-canceling headphones, you're canceling the noise with the noise, okay? Um, and so, like, I, I know some of, sometimes high schoolers, college students, even older people, they have those uh, airhead pods, and they put them in there, and they put their hoodie up, they put their hoodie up, and they think that nobody knows. Some of you might even be doing it right now. Um, <laughs> I said that purposefully. Um, but uh, you, you think that, uh, and what you're saying, and, and you may not think you're saying this, but you are saying this to the adults around you and everybody else around you. I don't want to hear from you. I'm done listening. I'm done listening. And I want to encourage you about, it's very important, uh, very important that you do that. You don't listen to some people. But when, when God is speaking to you, uh, you, you want to push everything away and you want to go like this. God, speak to me. I'm listening. I, I got to hear what you, you, you gotta, you're saying. I, I want to hear from you. Um, and I, I just wanted to tell you, uh, young people, that we all are onto your games, the hoodie and the airhead buds and stuff like that. Anyways, um, Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to be talking about does God love you? Does God love you? And uh, how would you answer that question? Does God love you? How would you answer it? Yes. He does. Oh. Are you sure? Why? Some of you are going, would you quit asking questions? You're making me nervous. I just want to stay with the first answer I gave you. Yes. Um, I I want to tell you that I I realize there are two basic types of people when you ask, does God love you? There's two basic types of people. The the first one, and there might be more, but like there's two huge groups that I I would like to separate. The first group says this, does God love you? And their immediate uh, answer is, of course, of course. What's not to love? (laughs) Right? Uh, some of you have siblings, and you did this at home. You did this at home uh, growing up. It's hard to imagine kids, but like everyone here was young once too. And um, all the dumb things that you are thinking about doing has been done and are represented here in this room and the older people, okay? You want me to find somebody? I will. Um, it might be me. Uh, but that idea, uh, of course, but you might be that sibling where... Uh, you, you thought to yourself, mom and dad love me. They love me best. They love me best. I'm the best. I'm the favorite child. 
And, and somebody say, well, how do you know that? You say, look at my competition. <laughs> look at my competition. It's not that significant, right? You know, obviously I'm the favorite. Obviously I'm the favorite. That's one, one group of people. The other group, the other group, when it comes to the love of God, they're, they're burdened and ridden by guilt and they say something different. They say, I'm not sure God could ever love me. I'm not sure God could ever love me. For the, for the child in the family, they say, oh, of course. You know, I'm the one who failure. I always mess up. You know, I'm the good, you know, they're the one that's the goody two-shoes. And I'm the one that's always the failure. Um, there's these two types of people. And as we look at uh, the word of God today, we're going to see uh, really these two wrong pictures um, of those of you who have trusted in Christ. The second thing, uh, maybe a secondary issue, and maybe the advanced class today, uh, we should ask the question, what is the worth of the love of God? The worth of the love of God. And when I say worth of the love of God, how does it make a difference that God loves you? Is it worth it? So, um, you can picture yourself, maybe if you had a bunch of siblings. I've been thinking about families today. But anyways, if you can picture yourself the oldest of a bunch of siblings. And, and you're, you go to school and, um, and you, you, you know, maybe you're in fifth grade or something like that. And your teacher's all over you. Your teacher's all over you for failing. Embarrassed you in front of class. Showed, your, showed everyone that you failed. And, and, then, and then, you know, everyone laughed. And then you go out to the playground and... Uh, maybe you get bullied or you get left out or you, you fail out on the playground. And then, you know, you come home and your mom and dad are just all over you as well. And, and you're, you're burdened and mad and frustrated and maybe the tears are welling up. And your little sibling says, well, I love you. And as an older sibling, you go, yeah, but who cares about you? I want everybody to love me. And so just because there's one little sibling that loves me, it doesn't make it okay. And so today, as an advanced part of this message, to ask the question, what is the worth of God's love to you? What does it matter? And so here we are in this great passage. Uh, Romans chapter 8. I want to start reading for you at verse 31. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, um, just trying to make, uh, remind us that it's special that we would stand. Uh, if you can't stand, that's fine too. Um, be standing in your heart. <laughs> uh, God's word says this, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, we ask your blessing on your word and uh, we ask that you would open our hearts. I pray for each one here that their ears would be open and not just their ears, but their heart also. God, you change lives into being uh, those who are destined for destruction to those who are destined for eternal life. This is your plan. This is your work. And it's based upon your love for sinful people. God, help us to embrace this now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, so this week, uh, this week we're going to handle just verses 31 through 34. And then the following week, next week, Lord willing, we will look at 35 through the end. And, and really this whole passage is about the love of God, uh, God's love for his people. And what we're going to look at today is really the logic of love. I, I don't, you know, the idea that Paul is, is making, uh, making a, a lawyer's case that God loves you. This is what you will have to answer. Uh, I know that God loves me because of this, because of this. Some of you uh, use, you answer that and you say, well, how, how do I know that God loves me? My mom told me so. And mom is great. Mom is great. I'm not, I got nothing against moms. I had a mom. I live with a mom. I have uh, daughter-in-laws, moms. I, uh, moms are great. But they're not authoritative. And like moms, you know, think you're great even if you're not great sometimes. And vice versa. Um, but, but know this. We want to give you something this morning. God wants to give you his word, his word, so that you can know for certain that he loves you. Okay. That's kind of the goal. So today, this week is the logic of love. And then next week, um, we have this beautiful uh, conclusion. And, and what it is, we're going to see, I don't want to just say the emotion. It's definitely emotional, the, the conclusion of uh, chapter 8. But it's, it's victorious. It's victorious, the victory of love next week. And so uh, you're going to want to be here as well for that. So this week, the logic of love or the proof of love is what it titled it. And then next week, the victory of love. We see in verse 31, the intro. And, and Paul's doing this thing where he's asking questions. And, and it's, it's one of the greatest ways to teach. For those of you who are teachers and you're teaching people with full brains and stuff like that, ask them a question. Ask them a question. And Paul is wanting them to think. And he's wanting them to think about the things that are important. And, and as I think about you young people here today, I, I, I want to say, it may be hard, but think. Think. And ask tough questions. And know that God uh, has answers for you, even for the tough questions. Uh, you may not be able to comprehend all, all the greatness of who he is, uh, but don't be afraid of tough questions. Paul asks a question in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? These things. As he says these things, I, I want to tell you that um, as we, I'm humming a little bit here, Anthony. Um, 
probably me bouncing around a little bit. But uh, um, as we think about these things, it could be just the thing he had just talked about, but chances are it's really all of uh, Romans up to this point. He's, he's concluding, uh, making a transition, and he says, I want to conclude some stuff. And what has he talked about in the book of Romans? He's talked about some things. What are they? Well, the desperate state of man, the desperate state of man. Um, those of you who uh, would dare uh, have gone to Disneyland before, and there's this ride that's older than dirt. Uh, it's a small world. And you go on, it's a small world, and you go through all these nationalities or cultures, and you know, you see all these different dolls that are freaky looking uh, from different places, and it's this celebration of cultures from around the world. Now, we like to do that. When we study history and cultures, we always go, oh, the, this group was so great. They did this and they did this and they did this. Rarely do we study history and say, what was the worst thing about that culture? You know, right? Uh, you, if you go through and you're, you're looking at different cultures and this and that, and you go, oh, oh, the slavery culture, Oh, the terrorist culture. You're, you're in a small world, you know, you're going through, oh, the terrorists right there and the, the slaves over there. And, they, and then you, you see the guy in the lather hosen and you say, oh, the Nazis over there. Yeah, you know, I can say that because I'm German. Uh, but uh, you, you think through that and you say, oh, in, in reality, that's what we know culture, humanity by, Right? And the book of Romans tells us not of the good things of humanity, but of the bad things, of the desperate state of man apart from Jesus. And I want to tell you that there's, you know, as we look at the book of Romans, we see the inability of one to save yourself. Kids, adults, everybody here today, I want you to listen. Uh, When you find yourself in a mess, when you find yourself in a mess in sin, the, the answer from the book of Romans is you cannot save yourself. You can't be good enough to be right with God. And he, he makes this, belabors this point, and we, we say, well, yeah, he's belaboring it over and over again. I want to tell you, because in our minds we go, oh, no, I can do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, uh, I, I got ingenuity. I'm, I have an entrepreneurial insight. I can overcome obstacles, you know. I can work hard. And yet we come up empty. And so we look at that in the book of Romans. We see that over and over again. In fact, we see these words, all have sinned, all have fallen short. None seeks after God. None are righteous. And then he speaks of righteousness and he says, the unrighteous need to be righteous, need to be fixed. How can they do it? And so we come uh, with this idea is what do we say about these things? And what does he say? He asks this question about these things. And then he says, another one, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, uh, I want to go back to those first two people I talked about. God is for us. You know, what would some people say? They would say, yeah, God's for me. Do you understand what an arrogant thing that is to say? Out of all the people in all the world, God is for me. God is for me. He's behind me. He cheers for me. God is for me. The other side of that is this. 
It may sound like an arrogant statement to say, God is for me. But, but what about the other side of that? What if God is not for you? What a desperate situation, right? The, the idea that um, you're left to a world alone and God is not with you? I, I, I want you to, and I don't talk about this often enough, but where is this, what is this letter written to? Rome, right? What was Rome like? Two to four million people, biggest city in the world. Probably a disaster, right? There was all these people. And what was the church? It was this small minority of people in the midst of the biggest city in the world. And, and you know, most of the time, most of the time when you're young, you, you like the idea of being with a lot of people, Right? You think it's fun, it's exciting when there's a billion people at the beach or at the concert or whatever. You go, man, it's, it's fun. But what if you really thought for a minute and you thought to, that, that all these people are not with you, that you're alone? And I want to tell you the church at Rome, as they must have seen themselves, this small minority in the midst of a metropolitan people from everywhere, different nationalities and languages and beliefs and you know, money and perversion and all this stuff was there. And they go, oh, what are we doing here as a church? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the question he brings up, I believe, is an introduction of a topic or a conclusion to these first eight chapters. It may sound arrogant to say that God is with you, but your relationship to God Our relationship to God, ours individually, really determines, you know, how we view everybody else. What if, it goes back to that thing, if if God loves you, what does it matter if somebody else hates you? Uh, and, And the question is, who matters most? Who matters most? And so this is what is coming out and really the perspective of knowing the love of God and allowing that to give you perspective on what happens in the world. Um, Who who do you want to be loved by? Who do you want to be right with? If you want to be approved of in this world, just do everything that they want you to do. Everything. Just do it. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means, it could mean just get good grades. If all your friends get good grades and you say, oh, I'm going to get good grades and then they'll approve of me. But what happens when you don't get good grades? Maybe you're out of the club. Maybe, maybe your friends are the drinkers and you go, oh, I'm going to a party and just what we do and this is how to be fun. And, this is, and so you do that. And I want to tell you, who does it matter And who is the one that you cherish? And who is the one that it matters most that they love and approve of you? And they're with you. This is the question, uh, culminating question in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that he's trying some stuff together. And I want to tell you, as we talked about next week, victorious, right? Um, Say it plainly. This will pump you up if you understand it. This will thrill your heart. It'll give, you know, pep in your step, okay? And so where do we get to? How do we presently know that God loves me? Verse 32. He is a gracious giver, gracious giver. 
God is a gracious giver. In verse 32, this is what it says. Look at it, either up on the screen or in your Bible. Um, He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How does that hit you, verse 32? He did not spare his own son. Did not spare his own son. Many people believe that what Paul is thinking about as he's inspired to write this, he's thinking about Genesis, where Abraham uh, took Isaac under the uh, instruction of God to go and to sacrifice up a hill. And he, he says, take your son and sacrifice your son. And as Abraham was coming down with the knife, Uh, God stopped him and said, don't lay a hand on the son. I've provided for you. I've provided for you a sacrifice. And I'm sure uh, that was a big deal that day. Abraham and Isaac, Isaac's going, uh, you know, he asked earlier, he says, I see the fire and the wood, but what's the sacrifice? And uh, he said, God will provide. God will provide. And then he got up the hill and he goes, oh, I'm the sacrifice. Uh, I'm supposedly God's provision. But then he realized there was something else that was God's sacrifice. And as we look to the New Testament, we see, we see after the fact in the book of Romans, what do we see? He did not spare his own son. Now the language here, maybe you're too familiar with it. If you've been in the church a while, maybe you've read the scriptures. You go, oh yeah, that's just what it says. But know that it's different. He doesn't say that Jesus was killed He doesn't say that he was murdered. He said that he did not spare him. And so what you need to picture here is this, that as God the Father looked upon his son and sinners like you and me, and he said, and this is so hard for me to to say accurately, he said, "Um, I'll choose for them to live and him to die. My special son, I'll choose him to die and sinful man to live. He did not spare his own son. Some of you uh, were super smart when I was asking questions earlier and you knew the right answer already because in John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave. And how do you know that he loved you? He loved you because he gave. And when you say that, you look back at uh, Romans chapter 8 and he says, how do you know that he loved you? He did not spare his own son. He didn't spare his own son. And so uh, that's something you can cling to, right? That's logic. Uh, If he didn't love you, he wouldn't have sent his son to the cross. Know that for certain. That's just logical. That doesn't make sense. You say, well, God doesn't love me. Well, yeah, he does. Sent his son to the cross. Um, In fact, it's bigger than that in verse 32. He says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I I want you to get this picture. The language is such that he says, um, so, so who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? There's a lot of different answers to that, right? It was the Jews that did it, right? Some of you thought that sounded pretty anti-Semitic. No, it's just in the scriptures. It's the Romans. You know, it's the Romans. No, it was Pilate. That's who did it. Pilate did it. 
No, it was the guards. They were the actual ones that, that put, the, put their hands on Jesus. And, and yet, what does it say here? It doesn't say anything about him killing, uh, anybody killing Jesus. It says that he was given up. He was given up. That Christ, when he went to the cross, what was really going on, though you didn't see the hands of the Father, the hands of the Father were presenting for a sacrifice his special son. And so when we see the impact, he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up. He gave him up as the sacrifice. And then he asks another question. How will he not also with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? Jackpot. When you say, when you read graciously give him all things, uh, some of you are going, that sounds awesome. It is awesome. And you're saying, does that mean everything I see is mine? Does that mean like because God owns everything and like all the money in the bank is mine because he'll graciously give me all those things? I was thinking earlier, you know, uh, um, it also says in Psalms that cattle on a thousand hills, you know, some of you know the Parsons, they go to our church and I thought to myself, maybe I could just go take a couple of those because they're not his. They're my heavenly father's. And if he owns them and I get them, this is all good stuff, right? I want to tell you that uh, just because you're a believer in Jesus Christ does not mean that everything is going to be easy. It's not name it and claim it. It's not the idea that you're always going to get the nicest car, the nicest house, uh, the nicest clothes, the nicest food, you know, the, the healthiest life. You're not going to get that. That's not, that, that's not what the scripture teaches. In fact, as you look at Romans chapter 8, you've already seen the riches that we have because of Jesus. In verse 17, it says this, and if uh, he's talking about, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it talks about what we have as children of God, and in verse 17, it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so what you get a picture of here is an inheritance that we are rich heirs, and we will one day receive and not just receive the riches of heaven with Christ. And so the idea here is this. When you think about him being a gracious giver, you, you realize that God gave in his son, in his son, the greatest gift of all. And because he gave the greatest gift of all, it's like he invested his very best in you, to you. And then he says, and of course, I'm going to give you a bunch of other stuff as well. I'm going to take care of you. I, there's riches in heaven. There's all the riches. And you need to know this, that, that God doesn't say, well, I already gave you enough. I already gave you my son. No more for you. No more for you. And so you get this beautiful picture of God, the Father, being a gracious giver to you. Uh, the word gracious in there reminds us that it is not based upon what we do, but because of what he has done, his love for us. I want to ask you a question. Uh, you know, what do you learn about God in that passage? If you're trying to follow after God, what do you learn about God? That you should be a gracious giver too, right? Why? Some of you are cheap. You're cheap. 
I just wanted to say that and just see if anybody would react. Some of you are cheap. Uh, you, you, you're constantly, you know, when somebody has a need, you're going like this. You're holding onto your wallet. You're going, you're backing away going, I hope they don't ask me, you know. And, uh, and then if you, you feel like you should give, you're like, okay, what's the least amount I can give right now? I want to tell you, uh, when you see something, I, I want you to think through what God has done for you, what God has done for you. How, how does that equate? And, and what did he give you, right? Uh, did he say, yeah, I got a son laying around here that I don't like very much? You know, that's the one we'll offer up, right? No, his one special son. He did not spare his own son. In fact, he didn't spare his own son, but also after that as well, he promised to take care of you. And after that, the riches of heaven. And so God shows himself to be a gracious, extravagant giver, okay, and so if we're going to follow after God, have our look, we should be as well, right? Uh, we should connect in that. That was a, for free in there, okay? That, that was just the implication as I think about us as a church and us as people. We should not be uh, cheap with people, but generous with one another, generous givers. Um, so, so the first point, he, he is, God is a gracious giver to us, which brings us to point number two, verse 33. He is a judge that justifies, a judge that justifies. Verse 33, uh, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, it is God who justifies. Now, uh, are there charges that can be brought against you? Charges. In your past, in your past, is there things that you have done that you're guilty before God for? Some of you don't want to talk about it. Can we just get to the good part? No, I want to talk about this first, okay? The charges brought against you. I had a friend who uh, worked as a, a dean in a college, and when a student was out of line and he found out something that he had to bring him in, he would bring him into his office and he'd sit him down, and the first thing he would say to him, this is so great, he would, he'd sit him down and he goes, um, so, how are things going? Oh, good, good, good. And he says, can you think of any reason why I would have called you in here? And then he'd just sit back and listen. And he said it was always really funny because uh, once you find out about one thing, chances are there are other things as well. <laughs> and, and he said a lot of times when I'd ask that, they wouldn't think of the thing that I knew about. They would think of other things and they'd start spilling their guts. And he says, no, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. You know, and, and that, that's the way we are, right? We, there's charges against us, right? And, and the idea of this question, who could bring a charge against us? Many people, right? Your siblings could, right? They were there when you did those things or your friends or maybe somebody caught you doing something and maybe somebody from your past and, and you say, oh, there's all kinds of things that I could bring charges against me. Who could bring a charge against God's elect? That word elect or chosen, some translations say chosen, takes us back a few verses where he talked about the work of God. God chose us. He predestined, called, and then it says he did the amazing work of justification. We'll see that again today. And then what's the last one? Glorification. Glorification. And so he connects that to God's work in our life, and he says, who could bring a charge against God's elect? And that's this weird thing where it says, 
God chose someone, and who could bring a charge? A lot of people could bring a charge, but they're God's elect, and how does this all come about? And, and I want to give you this picture that God is the judge. He sits on the throne like he, he, he knows what you've done. Are you guilty? Yes. Okay. So you're before the judge. You're guilty. And who could bring a charge? Lots of people. Okay. As you think about this, I want to show you something. First uh, Peter chapter five, verse eight. This is what God's word says. Uh, be sober minded, be watchful. Why your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Um, young people, the devil's not a joke. Sin is not to be fooled around with. It's not something that, that, that's fine. It's, it's no big deal. The devil, it says, he's, he's like a roaring lion seeking to someone to, de- to devour. When I used to live up to, uh, near San Francisco, there were some dumb guys. There's plenty. But um, uh, they were at the zoo. They at the zoo, and they thought it would be a, a, a funny thing. You know, they were college guys, and they were fun, to, to try to antagonize the lions. And so they kind of climbed down in their cage. And a bunch of them died. Two or three of them died, right? Why? Because lions aren't to be messed with, right? And you picture here right now, Satan is this roaring lion. And they're like, oh, I don't want to be around a roaring lion. Well, he's just kind of prowling around. And the funny thing about lions is what? They sleep all the time unless they're eating, right? Um, And they're just kind of looking all lazy and everything until they're ready to eat and ready to pounce. I want to tell you a church that um, Satan's doing this all the time, right? Doing this all the time. And you say, well, there's people bringing charges. Sure, there's people bringing charges. Who's behind the people? The enemy's behind the people. Bringing charges. You get this picture. We'll look at it again in a minute. But I just want you to get this picture in your mind. You have the judge, you have the guilty one, and you have one bringing charges that are legitimate. But it says, who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies as God who justifies. It is the judge who justifies. What is that word justified? It means make right again. Or it's the idea of taking one that is unrighteous and making them righteous. We, we see this. It's a very short sentence. It is God, the judge, who justifies. And what do we get out of that? He's the judge that justifies. He's the one that makes right. And, and you have to ask the question, um, how do you do it? How did he still be holy? How did the judge still maintain the law and truth and justify? Go up to that previous verse. He did not spare his own son. He did not spare his own son. And so as we look at this, we're going, okay. How do I know that God loves me? He's a gracious giver. He did not spare his own son. How do I know? He's a judge that justifies. He does something in me at the cost of his son to make me right with him. Which brings us to verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? And as you see that word condemn, where did we see that word condemn before? Verse 1. 
8, verse 1. What's the big deal with condemnation? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemned means guilty, guilty, guilty. And how, you know, who can condemn us? Who can make us feel guilty? Once again, everybody, everybody. I want to show you another example of this this uh, picture here, okay? This picture of condemnation. In Job chapter one, verses eight through 11, if you know the story about Job, Job was a follower of God. And as he followed after God, God was blessing him and they're in great relationship. But we hear this, we see this conversation that we're not gonna be a part of. We're not a part of this conversation. We don't see this conversation. We couldn't have been there in this room. But you have this conversation between Satan and God the Father. And this is what the the word says. And they have this conversation. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? and his house, and all that he has, and on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. What he uh, was, Satan was suggesting, is he was bringing accusation against Job, saying, Job doesn't really love you. He's not a true follower. He's faking it. He's faking it. And he goes before God and says, if you take away all the stuff, the the good stuff, uh, he'll curse you to his face. Job's bringing accusation. He's bringing temptation. And you get, or Job, not Job, Satan is doing this uh, about Job. And, And what I want you to get in your mind is this is the enemy's plan all the time is to bring up questions in your own mind and heart. God doesn't really love me. I'm not sure he does. I don't know if he does. And, uh, you know, and maybe, maybe I don't really believe. And I want to I tell you something here. This is, this is for free, okay? This is not in the notes or anything like this. Young people, young people, please listen for a moment. There, there's people, powerful people throughout the world. Please listen, please listen. That, that they're after your souls, And when I say they're after your souls, they don't care what you follow as long as it's not the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, Christ who died on the cross for you. And they joke and they talk about, you know, just wasting your time, wasting your youth, confusing your, in your identities and who you're supposed to be and uh, not caring about families anymore. And, and one of these guys was asked, you know, how, how are you going to, how are you going to distract them? And, And he said, oh, real simple, uh, Drugs and video games. Drugs and video games. He just said it. Powerful man, billionaire. Part of the World Economic Forum. Do you want to be distracted by drugs and video games? And I would say pornography in there too, okay? I I want you to get, they're after you. They're after you. And who is that? It's not just people. Who cares about people, right? It's the enemy. He wants to distract you away from your creator. 
But how do you know that God loves you? Well, because in this last verse that we're looking at, verse 34, we have a present intercessor, one speaking on our behalf, present intercessor. Who's gonna condemn? Plenty of people can condemn. But why, why doesn't it matter? Well, look at verse 34. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding for us. Let me talk to you about that. First of all, he's saying this over and over again. What is the basis of the love for God? Is that he died. He died for us. God wouldn't have sent his son if he didn't love you to die for you. He wouldn't do it. He would not do it, okay? And so he sent his son to die for you. His son rose again, uh, canceling, you know, taking care of victory over sin and death. He, he won the victory. When, when the early church would talk about uh, really what they cling to, they would say he died, he rose again, he rose again. He went to heaven, he went to heaven and he's coming again to judge. He's coming, these are the four things they would do. If you look at this passage, it doesn't say anything about coming again to judge. Why? Why? Well, I think because, it's not that that's not true. I think that he's talking to the church. He's talking to the church. And he says, these are the things you cling to. He died. He rose again. And he went to heaven. What is he doing in heaven? What is he doing in heaven? In this passage, it tells us. It says that he went, uh, look down at verse 34. Who, Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding for us. Now, what is the right hand of God? What's the big deal with that? Well, if you look throughout the scripture, he talks about this all his time. Right hand of God, right hand of God. This is where Jesus is at, the, at his right hand. And you say, at his right hand. What's the big deal with the right hand? The right hand was in a kingdom was the place of highest honor, highest honor. And what kingdom is this? What kingdom? Where has Jesus gone? He has gone to the Father's side, to heaven. He is at the right hand of God, Okay. And what does it say he's doing? Why is he there? What is he doing? It says that he is interceding for us. Now, what what is this picture of interceding? I want to tell you that interceding connects us to the high priest. And the high priest in the Old Testament would go before God on behalf of the people, on behalf of the people. He would go on their behalf, bringing sacrifices and prayers. And there was this idea that people over here, high priest, God the Father, okay? And so as you you picture that, he's the high priest. What you see now, what you see now is Jesus taking on that role as the high priest and in a permanent way, sitting down next to the Father forever, forever on our behalf interceding for us. I want you to get this picture. Now, um, if you know Christ, if you know Christ, this is for you. This is for you. If you've trusted in Christ, then what we talk about, I I know that this is hard for us to get sometimes because of the language, but do you believe in his death 
and his resurrection. And, and, and I want to tell you, you could go like to the streets of Tehachapi and just ask somebody or, or down on the streets of Bakersfield. Down on the streets of Bakersfield. Some of you are from Bakersfield. You should know this. Ah, sorry. It's getting late in the afternoon. Um, the, the picture here is this. You could ask people and you'd say, what do you know about Jesus? Oh, ah, he died and rose again. Did I get it right? Did I get it right? And it's like a trivia question. It's like, no, it's not just about getting it right. Is that what you trust in? Is that what you trust in? It's not that you know it. It's not that you know the right answer. It's that are you trusting in his answer for your soul? Or are you saying, I can be good enough. I'll skate by. I won't do too many bad things. No, that's not it. It's trusting that his answer, his righteousness for you was trusting in Jesus' death and his resurrection. If that's true for you, Jesus sits for you on your behalf, interceding for you. Is there condemnation? Can people condemn you? Sure. Are there people who can bring charges and like, uh, you know, sure. There's plenty of people who can bring that stuff. It doesn't matter if you've trusted in Jesus. He's taking care of all of it. Let me give you three things as we close our time this morning. If you've trusted in Christ, you are permanently invincible. Permanently invincible. I I want you to know that. Because of what Christ has done, because of his love for you, you are permanently invincible. No charge, no condemnation, you are permanently invincible. But I want to add one word. You're permanently invincible and attacked, and attacked. As you think about that Roman church and and in the midst of four million or so people, and they're this small minority, do you think people persecuted them, bullied them, and treat them badly, for sure. And you might say that, you know, I get that in my family, I get that at school, I get that at work, and I want to tell you that sometimes we get confused because we're in the best uh, part of California here in the beautiful Kern County here, right? We're in this great part. Uh, Not everyone's going to agree with us. Not everyone's going to follow after Christ, and so there's this pressure that comes in from the outside. I want to tell you, We are, because of Jesus, what he has done, the love of God they poured out in his son, we are permanently invincible, but also attacked. Secondly, we need to remember the ring on our finger, the ring on our finger. Now, uh, those of you who are married, especially for those of you who are young married, I just want to remind you of something. Just because they lose the ring doesn't mean you're not married, okay? Okay? And it also doesn't mean that they didn't love you because they lost the ring. They've lost a bunch of things. You know, people who lose rings, they've lost a bunch of things, okay? Stuff happens, okay? Uh, So anyways, that, that idea of the ring on your finger. But what is a ring on your finger? What does it mean? Why do we have it? Why do we have it? I tell people this in marriage all the time. It's, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of, of love. It's a symbol of marriage, the permanence of it. And so as I look at it, I think to myself, oh, I'm married. Oh, Rebecca gave this to me a long time ago now. Oh, yeah, it's a symbol of our, our marriage, our permanent marriage. I want to tell you that as God gave you this scripture, it's for you to look at to say, I'm married. 
I have a relationship with God. It's because of Jesus. I see it in black and white. He's done it. It's not about whether I feel it. It's not about uh, whether, you know, I'm having a good day or a bad day. It's about what has gone on already, the ring on your finger. Which, which lastly, I would say the third point is this. Uh, I wanted to say till death do us part, but that's not really true. It's till the end. It's till the end. How long will God love you? You know, what is that picture of him interceding for us? It's that picture of saying, I'm going to be with you to the end. I'm going to be doing this to the end. I share that with you today because some of you are thinking right now, oh, man, I'm tired. I don't know how much longer I can make it. Uh, You know, God, I'm trying to follow you, but the world's becoming such a crazy place. I I don't know if if I can make it. I want to tell you, he's committed to you. He's going to love you, not just till tomorrow, but to the end, to the end. And then there's this beautiful picture for eternity that we have with him. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the encouragement from your word. We do ask that you would remind us of this. God, we, our, our flesh is weak. We are listening to the wrong voices many times and we struggle with our thoughts. We struggle with our past and may, may we cling to your word, the logic that comes from what you have done on our behalf. God, thank you for not sparing your own son. Uh, we love you. We're overwhelmed at your love for us. God, do your work in this church. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.